Hello, and welcome to Pablo's channel. Should I change the way I introduce myself, but, or should I just keep it as Pablo's channel? Well, I can't think of another, a better, uh, just, you know, just saying it. It's just Pablo, in it? Pablo and channeling. Pablo's show. Pablo's show! Or... Probably cringing as listening to that. Shut up, Paul, and just get on with the narration, will you? That's if you're interested in the narration. I mean, you know, don't think I've got a big subscriber level, have I? Anyway, there you go. Self-deprecating to start off with. Yeah, that's the way it begins. Right, okay, so it's still the 12th of October, 2021. Uh, I did a bit of shopping in Morrison's and I had an interesting conversation from a guy from Scottish Power in Morrison's. He gave me some good insights about electricity. Uh, you know, was, he, first it was all about the, you know, how uh, energy companies are getting are going, going bust the little ones and how energy prices are going up um, they get squeezed out. So had a very interesting conversation and then he was talking, uh, I mentioned about my... Oh, I'm not being billed for my electricity since I moved in here. And he gave me some good insights about that, which I'm not going to go into because it's a big conversation. I was talking to him for quite a long time, long respected. Um, but yeah. Anyway, there you go. Always interesting experiences we have, isn't there, on our, during our days. So yeah, back to the book. So it's now... Dummy shopping, I haven't cooked anything yet, so I'm going to have a little read and then probably have me sirloin steak and then may go back into it because I'm really, I feel really involved in going into a taste for honey. I've read this book but I've forgotten it. <laughs> uh, as with most things I've read, they, they're there but uh, it gets hazy uh, what actually happens. So it's nice to, it's, the joy is the, the clarity in the brain, isn't it, of things really. So, yeah, so it's now 10 to 7. It's starting to get dark now. Yeah, it's not completely dark, but it's getting dark, you know. It's, it's uh, pitch black after 7, really. But, yeah. So, here we go. Still the dining room, by the way. And still playing Steve Roach. Uh, this is called Atmospheric Dreaming. I think it was, yeah. Yeah, Atmospheric Dreaming, I think it's called. Okay. Here we go. Uh, chapter three. And this one's called Rolanding the Oliver. I think that's how you pronounce it. O-R and then landing. Rolanding the Oliver. <laughs> Briefly, said my host, when we were once more seated in the laboratory with the files and the dead bees to lend point to his words, the more I thought over here grows work. The more I was sure he had more or less blundered on this discovery while experimenting with bee breeding. But how did you beat off the attack of his bees? Didn't they come back? Yes, but by that time I was ready for them. That is why I think deduction, I fear, yet often all we have. He chuckled rallyingly at me, and I feared a relapse into the past, or worse, into theorising. 
I think Hairgrove doesn't know much about bees except their biology. Anyhow, I thought he didn't know much about bee psychology, about their patterns of behaviour, though I'm not so sure even of that now. It is pretty certain, though, that he didn't know that there is an answer to his pirate bee. I told you I was more interested I told you I was more interested in my bees themselves than in their honey. Come into my library a moment. I can best show you there. An actual illustration, he added, gorging my impatience. Often saves time, and then, with a glint of superiority which made me obey because I hate any unpleasantness, especially when a mind unfamiliar with a strange fact must understand it unmistakably. Let me just put the volume down a bit. And that's actually called Atmosphere for Dreaming. Sorry, not Atmospheric Dreaming. Atmosphere for Dreaming. Dreaming about bees. So yeah, uh... By the window, in the library, hung a cage with a couple of small birds in it. I was going to walk in and take a chair, for I had been quite uncomfortably perched on a bench, all the while in the laboratory. But suddenly my shoulder was held. Don't move, whispered my queer beekeeper. Look at the birds, and don't speak loudly. What am I to notice? I muttered back, more crossly ever than I had meant. All these antics vex me. You notice nothing? Went on the level went on the level whisper, even when your attention is drawn to it. I see two small birds, I whispered back, playing perforce this ridiculous game. And one is sitting on the upper perch, and the other on the lower. Then the absurdity of being made to take part in an intelligence test like a backward school child by a perfect stranger irritated me so that I wouldn't any longer go on whispering. Aloud I asked, would you be good enough to tell me what we are looking at and what it is meant to convey? Well, anyhow, that remark of yours has ended the performance, he replied airily. And, for clues, the familiar passage. Look how the heavens, down to muddled venture of decay, from the merchants of Venice, contains the explanation. Then, seeing that my irritation was really mastering me, he stopped smiling and added, Sir, you must pardon an old man. It is not senility, though, but something almost as out of date. Patient foreignness. When we entered, those birds were singing. At least one of them, the male, of course, was performing, and the female was listening enraptured. No, you are not deaf, only a little unobservant with your eyes. One can see his throat swell and his beak open, 
no human ear, you get my Shakespearean quotation, can catch one of those notes which his mate so appreciates. Yes, Mr. Bowcross, yes, I said a little mollified, for it was a queer fact of which I had never heard before, and I like queer facts. What have these birds to do with the bees? Are they to charm away the pirates? You're pretty close to the truth, he replied, surprisingly. How on earth can a bird we can't hear sing away a bee which is probably deaf? I've heard of bee-catching birds, but we don't know of any bird as yet which can serve this purpose. But this inaudible songster was unknown to our grandparents. And we know we now know of the spellbinding singer which can do what you ask. More remarkable than a bird, it is actually a moth. A moth which sings a humanly inaudible note. I had to show you the birds because experimenting with them gave me a piece of apparatus which may be of little use to both of us. They gave me my first records when I had learned how to make these and the hen bird had kindly shown me by her absorbed attention that I had indeed caught the note. I then went on to the harder task of recording a far more difficult voice and trying it out on a far more difficult and awkward audience. We had gone back to the library. Mr Bowcross, making me, I must confess, catch something of his interest, for I'm interested in gadgets, took out from an upper shelf what looked like a small homemade graphone combined with a barograph. Barograph. B or barograph? Barograph. B-A-R-O-graph. The drum had on its fuzzy lines like those I once saw on the earthquake chart. Besides the drum was a small hollow rod the use of which I couldn't imagine. He started the machine and the fine pen began its rapid scrawling on the paper as the drum slowly revolved. You are now listening to one of the most magical voices in the world, remarked Mr Bowcross, complacently. You can say no, I replied, somewhat tartly. But as you like quotations as clues to opinions, I can give you one for Hans Andersen's Magic Weavers. The king hasn't got any clothes on at all, cried the child. Dickens will do as well, he chuckled. There ain't no such sick, sitch person, sitch, S-I-C-H, such person as Mrs. Harris. But there is a voice, even if, I regret to say, only a potted one singing in this room so long as that needle pen trembles. Look. He threw open a panel in the outside wall and revealed the back of a glass hive in which the bees could be seen thickly crawling over the layers of comb. Stepping back, he swung the horn of the gramophone until it was trained on the glass panel in the wall. In two strides, he was back again. With a single movement, the sheet of glass was swung back, the comb exposed to the air. We heard the industrious hum rise to an angry buzz of protest. I was about to make for the door when the buzz was cut short even more swiftly than it had arisen. 
Not, though, to sink back into the contented working hum. What is more, complete stillness held the hive. It was a bee version of the Sleeping Beauty's castle. Mr. Bocos's hand stretched back. The whirring stopped, and with the last scratch of the pen, the hive came again to life. For a second, the bees hesitated, like an audience just before it breaks out its spell into applause. I did not, however, wait for the, their ovation. Without asking leave, I clapped shut the glass wall. In a few moments, they were as busy as ever on their obsessing honey. You could have waited a little longer, Mr. Bowcross remarked. They are so dazed that they generally go straight back to work. Work for all workers is the best escape from unpleasant questions and baffling experiences. Well, that is how I routed the invaders. We have air detectors against planes, but we have yet to find a note which will make enemy pilots forget they came to bombers. When Here Grows Bees came back, I was ready with my bell-mouthed sound muskets turned to the sky. Down they swooped. As soon as they were in range, which I had found by experimenting with my own bees, I started up my inaudible order to desist. desist, desist. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Certainly, if they save your hives. Already, my bees and the invaders were fighting, but at the first needle scratch on the drum, I saw them fall apart. My own dropped down to their alighting boards. Of the enemy, some lit on the flowers and trees. Others settled on the lawn. It was then that I picked up enough specimens to make all the tests which I've shown you. One moment, I said, up to that time I had stood like an open-mouthed simpleton, being shown an invention which might be magic or might be normal me- mechanism. For all he could decide. But now I was on my own ground, or at least not far from it. One moment, isn't there something wrong about all this? I'm rather interested in gramophones in my, in my way, and I sometimes read about them. I've understood that the best gramophone today will not record even the highest note audible to the fully hearing human ear. How about these super notes? I'm glad you know about these matters, he replied, for it makes it more interesting for me to describe to you this ingenious little toy. Perhaps you know that Galton made a whistle which blows a note which we can't hear, but a dog will. That whistle set me on this line of research. You see, the principle incorporated in that hollow rod on the far side of the machine by the drum. I won't go into details, but what happens is that air vibrations too fine and high for the ordinary gramophone recording or disc to render are stepped down when we are recording and then, through this simple but ingenious mechanism, stepped up again so that the high Rare note is recreated. The same principle has been applied to moving pictures. To take through a filter, a black and white film, which would have all the tones, though not all the tints, of the colour spectrum of visible light. 
and then to run this seemingly only black or white film through a complementary filter when a coloured film would be seen. The principle was was tried out to, to photograph the Delhi Durba of King George V. But until now, synchronisation has held it up. The difficulties with sound are not so great, so I overcame them without wasting too much time. Well, I had to own, that is, I must say, peculiarly ingenious. But what happened when the gramophone stopped? You couldn't keep it on till nightfall. I own I was a little uneasy. I kept it going the length of a full record and swept it a sack and swept into a sack all the enemy aliens I could. But apart from acquiring them for purposes of research, there was no need. Dr. Cheeseman is right. When an insect's instinctive reaction has been completely thrown out, it cannot, as we do, recollect and carry on. It must go back to its original place, as a man, after concussion, often has post-lesion amnesia, sometimes weeks or months, or, in a number of well-known cases, of years. So, as they came to, those I handbagged made off, and my own broods were free to carry on. Did they never come again? Once or twice, but looked as though some kind of conditioned reflex were being built up in them. Well, you'll be free now. I don't know whether you've heard, as we haven't referred to the tragedy, but the coroner told Hergrove to destroy his hives. In the next week or so, at least, I presume the law will see that he has done so. Mr. Bocross looked at me. I know more of bad men than of bad bees. Hergrove will get rid of the present hives, maybe. But, mark my words, he will not give up beekeeping, and the new lot will not be less malignant, but more, if he can make them. A man like that gets the habit, the taste for malicious power. It grows, and it is harder to break than an addiction for morphia, I know. He evidently spoke with authority, of what sort I couldn't say. I was more anxious to clear up the bee mystery first. What is this note which cows them, I asked. Well, as I have said, he replied, I am sorry not to be able to show you an actual songster. They are harder to come by nowadays than those rare birds in the next room and far harder to keep. I'll show you, however, a prima donna in her coffin. In fact, here is the form which uttered the voice that rooted a thousand murderers and, as you saw a moment ago, can make the most fanatical of all the world's workers down tools and idle as long as her music holds the air. As he took down the cardboard box which had evidently held no paper, he added, Queer, in the bird and animal world, the male sings and the female listens. But the knees and some other moths, those, for example, like the purple emperor, with scent we cannot smell. Suddenly he stopped. Am I getting senile? He exclaimed. Would I have overlooked that twenty years ago? Well, 
This is just like the way a dream is recalled. Suddenly, some instant of the day reminds us of a whole dream story which we would otherwise have clean forgotten. I was completely at a loss as to what he was talking about and waited while he scribbled down a note. Forgive me, he said, looking up. I think showing you this will have helped us more than all the rest of this valuable conversation. He opened the box, spread out, fixed with a pin through the fat body, lay a very large moth, curiously marked on the head. It is the biggest of all the British moths, and now quite rare. Had great difficulty in getting a pair. The male is in another box. Queerly marked, I said. That gives it its name, he replied. The Death's Head Moth. But it's really odd characteristic is its inaudible voice. It uses that not merely to attract the male, but for a purpose as strange as the instrument itself, to us to hypnotise bees, and, when they are so hypnotised, to enter their hive safely and gorge itself on their honey. Fancy holding up a bank only by singing, having to stuff the notes into your mouth all the while, and the bank officials ready to knife you to death the moment your voice gave out. When it comes to fantastic, we must give the prize to nature every time. We poor creatures who try to imagine the strange are always beaten by the sheer inexhaustible fantasy of the natural. Well, that shows how I beat off Hergrove's attack and, as I've said, he had no way of telling whether his aerial torpedoes took effect or not. He just guessed that no one else who kept bees would ever suspect that here was a challenge, still less know how to reply to it. And now, I said, firmly, getting up and going to the door, I am much obliged for a day's most interesting visit. May I have my honey and get home? I presume now that the sun is sloping and your hives are closing down. None of Hergrove's harpies will be about, even if he has not destroyed them. Oh, you are safe enough, he replied. They won't attack except to protect their hive or to rob another. That is why they came here. That is Hergrove's pretty little game. They root out all other rivals for him. It is really a very neat case of savage instinct being made unconsciously to commit crimes by savage intelligence. I was nettled by his absorbed interest in his own wretched bees and then in Hergrove's supposed motives. I, obviously, came in only a bad third. Here he had detained me a whole day under what, it was now clear, were false pretenses. Naturally, I had assumed when he had said before lunch that I had better stay, as he said so, because it would have been dangerous for me to leave. Why, I broke in, have you then kept me waiting about all day if it would have been quite safe for me to walk home? I own there was irritation, natural irritation, in my voice. 
he showed no surprise or resentment at my rather rough interruption. I saw you would not stay, simply to hear my explanation, he answered. You have some of the impatience of a certain proconsul Pontius, who, when in a famous and, as it would seem, important interview, he found the discussion becoming abstract, terminated it with premature irritation, asking what is truth and waiting not for an answer. So, as you chose to assume that I meant that you were in immediate danger of the bees and would not grasp that your danger really arose from your impatient unwillingness to understand the general character of the peril in which you stand. I permitted your misconception to serve your real interests and kept you here until you had had a fairly thorough demonstration of the factors impinging on your case. He said this in such peculiarly exasperatingly quiet tones that I need hardly say that his explanation had the reverse effect from soothing my feelings already on edge. <coughs> the insult of coolly patronising me by a lecture on my character was deliberately added to the injury of having used up my whole day. I held my tongue, however, though I felt quite uncomfortably hot. All this explains and shows how natural was my final and, I still think, inevitable protest. He paused, as I have said. I held my tongue with difficulty, and then he went on indifferently, as though there were nothing to apologise for, speaking slowly, as though he hadn't already wasted enough of my time. Since showing you that death's head moth, I think I ought to qualify what I have said. I know how impertinent advice from elders and strangers always seems, and, unfortunately, I am both, but may I request that you do not call on Hergrove without me. I should be very pleased to come to with you. Indeed, that was the final point I was going to discuss with you, after which I was not going to detain you any longer. How could I fail to resent that? I had been treated like a child, that had been tricked to serve its elders' ends. And now, while I was highly and rightly vexed, as if the wasted time were not bad enough, this old dom dominee was going to force his company still further on me and, in fact, make an attempt to order my life. Who was this old stranger, pushing his advice on me and directing what I should do and whom I should see and in whose care? It was, of course, I felt quite clear that he was angled all the time to put me in a position in which I should be unable, out of common politeness, to refuse his request. He was a clever old crank of a busybody. I hate being managed and manoeuvred. Even more, I dislike being made to change my ways and to do precisely the very thing which I live in the country just to avoid doing taking strangers to call on one's acquaintance. I felt so vexed at this transparent stratagem, coming on the top of everything else, the silly old man, with his senile sense of his own tactful finesse, thinking I shouldn't see through it. I was tired too, being kept 
waiting all, about all day, that I felt a positive revulsion against them, and, I suppose by contrast, something almost like clannish protectiveness towards Hergrove. What was this stranger, gossiper, romancer doing? Making all kinds of insinuations about one of our village. One of our villagers. A man about whom I only knew, as a matter of fact, that his honey was always good and quite reasonably priced, and who, poor fellow, had just had his wife killed by his bees which kept me in honey. True, he might not have been very fond of it, but English law had decided, rightly, that she was the victim of a horrible accident. Even someone you dislike, you can miss very much and be very sorry for, especially if he is suddenly killed in a horrible way. When I was a boy, we had a dog I never really liked. He used to bark and leap up on me, startling and dirtying. Yet when a car dashed over it, and there it lay like a smashed bag, I felt not only quite sick, I was really sorry. These thoughts, of course, went in a flash through my mind. I was pretty certainly more tired than I realised. Mr. Bowcross was standing before me with a rather assured expression on his face. Before I had thought out the words, I found myself saying, I'll pay for the honey. I'm a complete recluse and never introduce anyone to anyone else. As to my movements, I have never needed anyone to advise me on them. I stopped, I own, I lacked the courage to meet Mr. Bowcross's eye now, that I was being deliberately rude, so I couldn't judge how he took it. All I know is that he passed out of the room without a word. He was away for a few minutes, came back with a neatly made parcel with an ingenious handle made of the string, and named a ridiculously low figure. I fumbled a bit, and I am afraid was a little red as I paid. All he said was, the string will hold quite securely. It saves the trouble of a basket being returned. He held the door open, and with a rather clumsy good day I stepped out, hurried across the lawn, now in shadow, into the dusky path through the plantation, and so down into the toilet, toilet, not twilight, toilet, sunken lane. That's T-W-I-L-I-T. My nerves must have been overstrung. Perhaps I had been very discourteous. Discourteous? Discourteous? Discourteous. The whole place seemed unpleasantly still. Those silly melodramatic lines from the ancient mariner kept running in my head. Like one that on a loathsome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Doth. Doth. D-O-T-H. I didn't really feel at all comfortable until I was back in my own sitting room, with the lamp lit, the curtains drawn, and the door well bolted. 
And there you go. That was chapter three. Rolanding the Oliver. Okay, so that was a good half an hour. So I hope you join me for the next chapter, chapter four, which is called Fly to the Spider. We've had the salty fly, now the fly to the spider. Okay, thank you for listening, and I hope you're really riveted with the story. And uh, join me on the other side.